Good morning. Let me uh, turn this on. I should have done this before, but I forgot. We're going to be in uh, the book of Joshua most of the day this morning, so if you'll uh, turn to there, you'll be in the right zone. Also, we'll mention that uh, Camp Arete, which is a youth camp for kids aged 13 to 18, is happening, I believe, July like 14th through the 20th, somewhere in there. You can always go look up on the website, Camp Arete. Um, but they have some great Bible teaching for our young people and everything. I think this year, uh, David Roseland. Oh, here we go again. What's it doing that for? Why is it putting me up there? I don't, I'll try to hit a button and see if anything changes. Did the screen come up? Okay, good, good. So, uh, David Roseland, I believe, is teaching this year. He's pastor up in Connecticut. And uh, Clay Ward, these are both guys I know. They're good guys. Clay Ward, he's a pastor of uh, Playroma Bible Church in Tullahoma, Tennessee. And then Brad Maston, who's pastor at Fort Collins Bible Church. I actually I know all these guys. Um, and they're going to be doing the teaching. I believe it's on uh, sanctification, something related to that. So it's really good for the kids age 13 to 18 to get out there and, and realize, hey, there's other uh, churches like ours who believe, you know, the, the doctrines we believe, the truth we believe, and they can make friends. And they keep in touch throughout the year because my, my daughter's been to this camp. And the camp costs about, it's $450. There's scholarships av- available by need. By the way, that's really cheap for a camp. Um, as you may know, if you're a parent, you know, usually their cost at the very low end, like 650 all the way up to about $1,500. So there's, uh, it's, they're basically just covering their costs, <laughs> you know, for the camp at 450 And uh, there's scholarships available on a need basis. Go on the website. And uh, let's see, what else? Something else. But anyway, it's a good camp. Oh, they keep in touch. I've noticed these kids, they keep in touch. They pray for one another because, well, I've, I've looked at some of the texts. <laughs> so... so they pray for one another, and, and that's a wonderful thing, you know, these young people this age to have the, the, their peers as support group and praying for one another and all that kind of stuff. Um, okay, so before we get started with our, our study of the Battle of Jericho and the victory there and then the following battle at Ai and the defeat and how this all relates to sanctification and the, the application we can make to the Christian life, what we want to do is just take a moment in the privacy of our soul and uh, have a moment of silence and if need be, we can uh, confess privately unto the Lord and, and be restored to fellowship. And then, of course, afterwards, we're going to take communion. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're visiting with us, we ask you to please partake and share with us because we're all a part of the body of Christ. All right, so let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study this great period of history, uh, the conquest under Joshua and the settlement of the land, Uh, even though it's criticized quite harshly by those who are anti-theists, there is so much wonderful truth here that we can glean about our sanctification and uh, the difficulties and how to overcome the obstacles uh, that we face in the Christian life, since while they fought physical enemies to enter into the land to enjoy their inheritance, Uh, We have spiritual uh, enemies in the heavenly places that are at war against us. And the same principles stand that uh, to overcome these obstacles, we have to learn to trust your word and obey. And so we pray, Lord, that we would see this great and wonderful connection and uh, it to become real in our lives as we watch Joshua and the armies of Israel uh, go into the land against opposition. And uh, we pray for those who are unable to be with us, if they're sick or if they're traveling, those who are facing difficulties, uh, chronic uh, medical problems or other just um, temporary medical problems. We pray, Lord, that we would, again, use these principles of sanctification to trust you through these uh, so that we can persevere and come out stronger in the Christian faith, knowing in whom we believe and that he's able to keep that which has been entrusted to him until that day. And uh, so just uh, watch over our study. Help us humbly approach your word and uh, be respectful of what is here and uh, let it shine forth in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. 
Amen. Okay, so we are continuing the framework series where we just go through event after event. At each event, we study the doctrines and the apologetic outworking. So we are now following the events of Mount Sinai, uh, which was the great event where God gave the law, and we learned about the doctrine of revelation, uh, inspiration, and canonicity, shorthand Rick. So we went through those great doctrines, and God gave them the law there. He spoke to them in Revelation. He had it written down through Moses, or he wrote it down on the Ten Commandments, and other laws were written down through Moses during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and canonicity. This becomes the basis for the doctrine of canonicity, or how we know which books are the Word of God. So we studied all of that, and now we come to the next great event, and that's the conquest and settlement. And uh, the doctrinal truth that we learn with the conquest and settlement is sanctification. Sanctification. Now, mainly it's a picture of the experiential sanctification of the nation Israel, because the nation Israel comes out of the Exodus viewed as a saved nation. And um, then, of course, God gives them the law, and that's their rule of life. That's how they should live. And then, of course, now we, we get to see how they're going to live, how they're going to respond to God in the conquest and settlement period and uh, whether they will learn to trust his word and the law and obey and enjoy blessing in the land or not. And so we already started this with Moses, and we saw that Moses began the move toward the land as they went out from Mount Sinai, and they came up to the southern border of the land. Now, if you have uh, your Bible, um, I'm encouraging you to look at the maps in the back of the Bible for these things. I could put a map up, but... I keep having trouble getting maps up, and I don't know if this thing's going to work anyway, so why am I going to sit there for an hour trying to figure all that out? Okay, so um, this will just give you more access to your own Bible, you know, and remind us, hey, we, a lot of us have bio, uh, maps in the back of our Bible. It's usually one of those maps that's early. There's usually about nine maps in a Bible, and the second map in my Ryrie Study Bible is the rat, called the Route of the Exodus. So this, this will be the map. It's the main one we look at today. And uh, you can find in there Kadesh Barnea, and that's where Moses took the people and dispatched the 12 spies into the land to go out and spy out the land, right? And uh, they came back with their reports, right? Uh, Ten came back with a report that was negative, they said the land is good, it's just like God told us, but the people are big and we're, we're grasshoppers in our own eyes as well as in their eyes. Um, two came back with a good report, Joshua and Caleb, a positive report. They said, yes, the land is good and God is good. God will give us the victory, right? But the nation followed the, ten, the report of the ten and they failed to trust and obey the Lord. And instead, they trusted the ten spies. See, there's always a transfer of trust. If we're not trusting God, we're putting our trust elsewhere. And that's, that's the fundamental problem. It's not that I, if I didn't trust the Lord, I was neutral. No, you trusted somewhere else. Okay? So the Lord was angry about this. He pronounced judgment on that generation. And they wandered about for 40 years, right? And uh, so, or they were going to wander around. So before they wandered around, the people said, okay, God's mad at us. Okay, we'll go in. We'll take the land. But, well, obviously God can't bless sin. So uh, he doesn't bless your sin and my sin either. So they tried to go in, and then, they, of course, they faced their first military defeat. Then they ended up, of course, uh, wandering around for 40 years. This led to Joshua and the event that we called the Battle of Jericho. And uh, we all heard the song, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Uh, even though the song's inaccurate, you know, Joshua did not uh, fight and win the battle of Jericho. God did. Um, so the song's not exactly accurate. Uh, God always kind of gets left out of his role. <laughs> um, but the battle belonged to the Lord. It was the Lord's battle. And he won the battle of Jericho. And, and the people, they learned, they had trusted, right? They trusted. But we're going to see about that and see how it worked out. Before we do this, um, we want to review a few of the principles we went over last week regarding the conquest and settlement, and, and it's very important to understand these principles. This section of Scripture, as we mentioned last week, is a very misunderstood section of Scripture because uh, God commanded what appears to be genocide. It's 
So turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 20. I told you to go to Joshua so you can hold your place there. We are going to spend most of our time in Joshua. But the previous book is Deuteronomy, and we want to look at chapter 20 again. Chapter 20. This is where we find a command for genocide. This is where we find the idea that people say God is religiously intolerant, uh, the God of the Bible is, and God, the God of the Bible, is he's averse to peaceful coexistence. He doesn't want people living alongside of his people uh, peacefully. And we do have to ask ourselves the question on Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, what do we, how do we deal with a, a, a verse like this? Okay. Now, prior, prior to this verse, verses 13, 14, 15, these are all giving the rules of engagement for cities that were outside the promised land. But in verse 16, we see the rules of engagement for cities inside the promised land. So there is a geographical difference in how God wanted them to carry out war, and it hinged on where is the city in relationship to the promised land. Is it in the promised land or is it outside? So um, if it was inside the land... Inside Israel's inheritance, verse 16 says, Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave anything alive that breathes. I want you to let that uh, sentence sink in. You will not leave anything alive that breathes. Period. Men, women, children, It doesn't matter. Uh, Verse 17, But you shall destroy completely the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. These are all the peoples that live in the land. As the Lord your God has commanded you. Um, I don't know what y'all do when you go home on Sundays, but usually on Sundays I will take some time to just say, okay, what did we learn today? What, What was taught? You know, or what about this? What about that? And give some quiz questions, you know. So, you know, the best quiz question for the whole lesson last week was something like, what do you, how do you feel, you know, you ask your kids, how do you feel about, you know, they're going to go and they're going to kill all the kids, they're just going to bash them against the rocks. What do you, how do you feel about that? Well, you know what the first answer I got was? Well, it's a doctrine of infant salvation. It's actually a benefit for the kids because those kids were going to grow up in a damned culture and would never believe, believe but here they all, they're all going to go to heaven. It's the first response I got. So, and I was like, exactly right. I, didn't, I don't bring up all the answers on every Sunday. I knew that answer, but I didn't bring that up last week. I hope that y'all would do the same thing, you know. You, you think through and you connect and harmonize the doctrines of Scripture, okay? If the requirement for salvation is faith, and in order to have faith, one must hear. That's what it says, faith comes by hearing, Right? So in order for a person to, to come to salvation, they have to hear the gospel, okay? And then they have to believe the gospel. Well, the question arises then, well, what about people who can't hear in the sense they can't understand? They're just like little tots. They're like one or two, three, whatever years old. What about them? Well, because of the principles of the grace of God, right, he meets that criteria for them in the sense that he, the, the salvation is provided for them and he, he handles that. Um, of course, this is, of course, a wonderful doctrine for um, people who've lost children when they were very young or they have retarded children who could never understand the gospel and, and, and believe it uh, or those who, who had spontaneous abortions or, or abortions because they know uh, that the Lord is going to take care of these children. And that's the same thing here with the conquest, right? He's going to take care of those children. Will not the judge of the earth do what's right? Well, yeah, so we put together who God is uh, and, and we reason through these things and come to, to have rest in him. So, um, but we have to deal with this, okay, going in there and basically just destroying anything that breathes, right? And how did we say we have to frame this issue so we can understand? Because this is something you just can't walk by. You can't dance around this and prance around this all your life. So the first thing we said is look at the event of creation. And we think through creation because creation teaches us that God is the creator of the entire universe and as the creator of it he's the owner it's just like if you invented something the rights belong to you right not to someone else and you have the rights to do with it as you please as its developer its creator the mind behind that product well he created the whole universe so it all belongs to him 
The earth belongs to him. And if he decides to give a portion of the earth to one people group, he has the right to do that because it's his to give. Okay, And he did that. With, with Abraham and his descendants through Jacob, who are the 12 tribes, he gave a certain portion of the earth to. So we pull in creation as the first event. We also pull in the call of Abraham because this is where God, we'll just put Abe, um, where God gave them the land. Okay, And then we also pull in another event, the fall, in order to help explain this because the fall teaches us that man is evil and that it's, it's man's fault. Okay? We're, evil because, we're not evil because God created us evil. God created us very good. Genesis 1.31, God looked at everything that he had created, and behold, it was very good. There wasn't any problems at creation when it left his fingertips. Um, so we, int- we, as humans, introduce evil into this world, and God, of course, is holy, and this means that he's not obligated to keep us around. He's not obligated to give us the next breath. He's not obligated to provide rains or seasons or, or any of those things at, at creation, at the fall. He's, he's, no, he's not obligated to do that. So the fact that we're very here is just a reflection of his grace, right? He's gracious also to keep the Canaanites around and the Jebusite and the Hivite and all these people that are described as being in the land whom he's going to wipe out. So if he's gracious to have kept them around for more than 400 years and give them opportunity to respond and change their lives, but they decided not to change and respond to God, and their evil just got worse and worse and worse until it was completely out of control, and God says, okay, that's it. I'm going to remove you from the earth okay, through the, the uh, invasion of the Israelites, and I'm going to go before them and remove you. Is, how, how is there anything wrong with that? Um, it's his earth. He's holy. They've given 400 years of grace, and they've decided not to respond to it. So at some point, the evil gets so bad, what do you got to do? You got to excise the evil. I mean, what do you do if you get cancer? Do you just let it grow? That's what you'd be saying. We need to let cancerous groups of people on the earth just continue to grow, and their evil to spread, and let's not do anything about it, and let's just overlook it forever and ever and ever. Well, eventually, the whole world's going to become corrupt, right? And that's not the way you deal with cancer, is it? You go in there and you cut that sucker out as early as you can. Why? Because <laughs> it's going to be out of control. It's going to kill you. Okay? So God said that's it at this time. Okay? Um, it's going to stop. I'm going to stop it right now. And that's verse 18. Okay? So he did not want them to learn, the Israelites to learn, to do all the detestable things that the Canaanites and so forth were doing. So that's why the conquest. Okay? God gave them the land. The people in the land were terribly corrupt. Uh, the time had come to stop the corruption. And the way to stop it is, is judgment, okay? Now, people don't like judgment. They don't even like the word judgment. And the reason they don't like judgment fundamentally, none of us fundamentally really like it, is because it involves a separation, okay? And separation hurts. Separation is painful, okay? But ultimately, let me ask you a question. What other solution is there, okay? Ultimately, the only solution to finally separate good from evil is, is some kind of a judgment, okay? Now, finally, of course, in the end of history, this is going to be done eternally, okay, right? There's going to be a final judgment. It's going to be a separation of good and evil so that good and evil remain separate forever, okay? Now, it's part of the gospel, isn't it? Judgment is part of the gospel, isn't it? John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him will not perish, Okay, that's a judgment, but have everlasting life. Okay, so there's a judgment. There's a separation here. Did you hear the separation part? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, so how, how is this judgment going to take place between those who perish and those who have everlasting life? Well, obviously it takes place around a person's uh, individual response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who believes has everlasting life, that's one side. Who does not believe will perish, that's the other side. So the very separation that we're talking about... Um, happens ultimately in history on the basis of how a person responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in history, before all this, God has given certain foretastes of the final separation. Um, The flood is another one of those examples, right? The flood separated those who were outside the ark from those who were inside the ark, those who believed God was going to send a global flood, and those who said, ah, fooey, whatever. Okay, did they have any time to respond? They had 120 years to respond, okay? And only eight people got on that boat, says Peter, right? So 
they had an opportunity, but at last there's a judgment, a final separation. Here we're seeing another con uh, separation at the conquest and settlement, and it's a foretaste of the final uh, judgment at the end of history. So what we're saying here is, look, look, this is not going to be a surprise at the end of history, after everything has taken place, that there's a final judgment. How is it not going to be a surprise? Because people have been given public historic events where God gave them a foretaste of final judgment and the separation that will take place. So here you have Israel, and they're viewed as a saved nation coming out of the Exodus, and the other nations in the land, and they're a picture of the unsaved. And God is going to separate the saved from the unsaved okay, through war. So what we're doing by, by going back to the fall and, and the question of good and evil and all of that is really just setting up the framework for understanding the conquest and settlement and why God would say, I want you to go in and I want you to destroy everything that has the breath of life in it. Okay? Why this separation? Why whole societies are obliterated and why is it a big bloody mess? Okay? Because people will come to this section of scripture and they say, this, is, this does not sound like a very nice God. I mean... Um, and this is exactly where the critics attack the Bible. Okay? So we have our answer to that. And our answer is that this is a scaled-down version of what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes back. Okay? It's not going to be very pretty when he comes back. I don't know if you ever read Revelation 19, but it's not, it's not very pretty. Okay? Uh, because he is going to, going to, by force, take over the entire planet. Okay? So there's not going to be negotiations. There's not going to be any peaceful coexistence. There's not going to be any discussion between the God of this world and the God of heaven on this point. It's just going to be an all-out bloody mess. Okay? So this is necessary. Judgment is necessary to get this final separation. And if it doesn't happen, then, then what, what solution do you have for evil in this world? Okay? What I want you to see, and this is... Uh, I'll repeat this and repeat this over and over because later when we come into this business of living the Christian life, how do we live the Christian life in sanctification? I don't want you to come to the conclusion, as we often do, that sanctification is just living a moral life. No, sanctification is not living a moral life. It's much, much more than that. There are cosmic issues at stake here. Okay, with the God of this world, Satan, and the whole demonic realm. Okay? The whole question of evil, okay, the whole question of evil is wrapped up with sanctification in the Christian life. Okay? And if we're wrong on this point, okay, if it's not true that good and evil have to be separated, then guess what, folks? There's no hope for our world. There's no hope. This is what's so hard to, to grasp. Okay? If good and evil are not going to be separated by a judgment then evil is going to continue to exist forever and ever and ever, and there's no escape. And that is why there is a great level of depression, okay, in this world. Because from their point of view, there is no way that you can ever escape evil. In fact, many people just answer the questions themselves and say, the best way to separate myself from is just to destroy myself. Just get out of this existence. Okay, they're fundamentally recognizing something true. This world is permeated by evil. Okay, they're answering the question the wrong way, right? Sadly, okay, because there's an answer. Okay, and we're not boasting saying, "Look how smart we are. We got the answer." We're saying, "No, God has given the answer." Okay, God loves you. He has a plan for your life. He wants you to trust in His Son. He's got. A, he loves you. There's no reason to uh, get rid of yourself, to ex exclude yourself from this world. But the point in the end is that. Christianity is the only view that has an answer to the problem of evil, okay, the separation. It's a judgment, and people don't like it because it's painful, okay, but it's, the question comes down to this. If, if we don't get rid of the evil, then we can't get to world peace. We can't, okay? And the problem is us. The problem is us. So <laughs> there has to be some kind of judgment, uh, otherwise, it just goes on forever and ever and ever. Now, that's what this war in these verses is all about. And that's why he says in verse 17, I want you to utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite. Those societies that had reached the end of grace, okay? They had rejected God, rejected God, rejected God. Now it's time for judgment. Now, here's a question, okay? We've, we've beat that horse to death. Now, here is a question, okay? Was there any way for 
people in those cultures to escape. Well, what's that section about Rahab the harlot written for? See, what was the point of that? I mean, this woman was a Canaanite, right? I mean, were her people, as a people group, were they scheduled for destruction? Absolutely. Was, the question is, was she, as an individual, was she also scheduled for destruction? Well, apparently not. Okay, I mean, as you read the story, you learn that she's not, is what I mean. Okay, but why was she not? Because she responded to the God of Israel. Okay, she came out of her people and she joined herself to the God of Israel. So this is a remarkable thing. This is what you miss when you uh, just read little pieces of scripture, but you never put them all together. There's a reason that Rahab is given such a prominent role in the Jericho event. And it's to balance out understanding, okay? Because what could you conclude from verse 17 here in Deuteronomy is that uh, Rahab must have believed, and having believed, she was judicially removed from the sentence of doom pronounced on all those peoples in verse 17, okay? Because the rest of the people in verse 17 just had hardened hearts, and the damnation comes because of their hardness of hearts. But she had a soft heart. She responded as a person within that culture who took the same information everybody else in her nation had, all the other Canaanites and those at Jericho had, and she responded positively to the God of Israel. And she separated herself from that culture. So what does her life become an argument against? Her life is an argument that, you know, somebody could come along and they could say, well, the God of the Bible, he's so unfair. He just arbitrarily destroys everybody without giving anybody a chance. Uh, no. There's Rahab, remember? So her life is a counter to that argument. Because look, if a harlot could get it, anybody could get it. That's the whole point. You see, see how that works? And see how marvelous the God of history is that he would, it would be this woman of all people? That woman, Rahab, who we will all meet and know okay, forever, has an amazing story. She has a fantastic story of the grace of God in the midst of judgment. Remember, Joshua sent a couple of spies, and this is how it all happened. They, they show up at the local brothel. I hope you read Joshua 1 through 7 last week to get ready for today. They show up at the local brothel. You know, uh, This isn't some ancient western, but it reads like one. And uh, they're going to get some information. It was Rahab's place. Okay, What does she let them know as sort of they're milling around trying to gain intelligence on the people in, in Jericho? Well, she spilled the beans about the mentality of that culture, about the mentality of the people. And she knew, I guarantee you, okay, who knows everything about their culture if the people is not down at the brothel, okay? They know everything that's going on. They know all the talk of the town. She knew what her culture thought, okay? Lots of customers. All the guys are talking, okay? So she knew what they were thinking, okay? And she told them. What did she tell them? She said, our people have been terrified for years, why have her people been terrified for years? Because she says, we heard that Yahweh, and she uses the name Yahweh. They didn't use the name Yahweh. She introduces that term for the God of Israel, Yahweh. We know what the God of Israel, Yahweh, did to the superpower of the world at the time, the Egyptians, when he drowned them in the Red Sea. And she said, we're afraid. And the irony of the whole thing is that <laughs> what were the Israelites thinking for those 40 years? They were afraid. They were afraid of the people in the land. Well, the people in the land were afraid of them. Okay? So we had like, it was like a Cold War, the Cold War, right? I mean, both sides are worried the other side's going to push the button. We're going to have a nuclear holocaust or something. Okay? And now they're getting the information from this woman that, my goodness, I mean, we could have gone in any time, okay, and just taken these people out because they were afraid. They were psyched out. God had psyched them out at the Red Sea over 40 years before. Okay? So this woman becomes a massive intelligence source for Joshua, okay? Now, when the spies get back, Joshua suddenly realizes this. He's like, my goodness, it's 40 years, you know, we could have gone in there. But how, how do we apply this same principle to the Christian life, okay? You know, we do this. We do the same thing. We get psyched out. We struggle in the Christian life, and, you know, the reality is we're thinking, you know, Satan's so strong. All these things that are happening in my life around me, there's no, I, I can't, we can't overcome these obstacles. I mean, it's just too great. I mean, it, life is too hard. And, and what happened? We're getting psyched out. That's what's happening. Okay, but what's the reality? 
The real situation is that the prince and powers of this world are terrified of us. Why? Because Jesus Christ has died and he's risen again. He's risen from the dead. They know that. The princes and principalities of this world know that. And they know it better than Rahab knew about the God of the Israelites. See? Now, do you see the power this gives you in the Christian life? Christ is risen. That's why it's been called one of the most important. It's been called the most important doctrine in the history of the world. That someone has come back from the dead and now sits, as we're going to see, in a position that is undefeatable. So the principalities and powers of this world, Satan and his minions, they know that Jesus Christ left this planet in his physical body, in a resurrected body. They know that he now sits above them on the high ground. Okay? They know that, and they know it better than any one of us. Okay? But they would have us believe, through their little insidious whisperings into our hearts, that we're the defeated ones, that we can't overcome the obstacles in our daily life. And we have to fear them because they're in control of history. That our God is somehow distant. He doesn't really care about us. He doesn't care about you and all your daily problems. That's what they would have you to believe. But all the while they're whispering those ideas into our hearts, you know what? They know the real situation. They know that they're finally defeated. They know that there's no way to, to win. So this is a picture of what happen, what's happening here with Joshua and them being fearful of all these people in there. They say, oh, we look like grasshoppers, blah, 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 blah. When the real situation was what? Those people were scared of them the whole time. Okay? So this is a picture of a larger cosmic scheme I've, I've shown, shared you with Satan and all that. Okay? And this is why the conquest and settlement is so dramatically important for our Christian mentality. Okay? It gives us vivid, this gives us a vivid picture. It's easy to remember. Children can remember, hey, these people were walking into the land. They were giants, you know. I mean, what, what are we going to do to them? You know, their swords are as big as we are, you know. <laughs> so you just have to get your handle, a handle on these three or four biblical st stories that we're going to go through here, these battles, and just imagine it in your mind, okay. Go through it. Read the scriptures. Read the scriptures. Read the scriptures. Just let your mind soak in these things, and you know what will happen in the end? You'll come out with tremendous strength, okay. When the next thing happens in your life, which may be tomorrow, maybe the next week, maybe the next year, but something's coming, right? It's not if you're going to face trials, it's just when, right? So we want to go further now into the, into the Jericho event. And of course, most of us have heard about Jericho, but there's some things about the Jericho passage I want to show you, okay? Um, you have your maps, right? Okay? Uh, if you have your map in the back of your Bible... Okay, you, you see the map of Israel. You, you see where the land of Israel is. Uh, kind of, well, I could kind of draw it here. It's basically shaped like this. And uh, up here you have like the Sea of Galilee, right? Although it's shaped more like, that's not, that's not a very good Sea of Galilee, but anyway. More like that. Then you've got down here, you've got the Dead Sea, right? Over here is the Mediterranean Sea, right? Okay, now... They tried the southern route from Kadesh, Barnea. Now they're going to try the eastern route, okay, and go into the land here, okay? Now, they didn't make it from the south because they didn't trust and obey, right? They wandered around 40 years. Now they're coming from the east. In military uh, principles, there are several things that you need to attend to or follow if you want to have victory. Okay. One of these in all ancient warfare is that you want to command the high ground. You want the high ground because it's easier to fight down than it is to fight up. Okay. In Israel, there is a mountain range that runs right here. Okay. It's due to the Syrian-African Rift Valley, which runs right through where the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee are there. But this is the high ground. Okay. It runs north and south. And this is why... Uh, well, you've got this one city right here in the middle of that called Jerusalem, right? And when you, when you read in the New Testament, they went up to Jerusalem. Now you know why. Because it doesn't matter from which direction you go. It's in the center of that mountain range there, and it's the highest port. It doesn't matter which direction you're coming from. You're always going up to Jerusalem, okay? So whoever controls the high ground can control the land. It can go out from there and take over the whole land. So... Uh, militarily, 
everyone, they're going to have to fight to get up there. And they're going to come from the east, right? This, this means normally you're going to have heavy casualties as you work, work your way up to Jerusalem. And then they're going to go north and south. Okay, that's the plan of attack. So Joshua's coming in from the east. He's got to get to that high ground. Okay. Um, then south and north. Okay, Cla- this is classic military tactic. Okay. That was then. Okay. Now, let's think of applications now for our Christian life. Okay. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is planning to take over the world. They're planning to take over the land. So there's a parallel. Okay. Where is Jesus Christ right now in his resurrection body relative to Satan? Satan and the demons, they dwell in the, you know, let's say the second heaven, you know. That's their basic domain, okay. Well, he's on the high ground. He's in the third heaven, okay. He ascended in Acts 1 to the right hand of the Father, okay. And the argument of the book of Hebrews goes on, and it says that Jesus Christ passed through the heavenly places. That's talking about he passed through where the demons dwell, okay. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father on high, on high. It keeps saying that in Hebrews over and over and over on high. Why? Because it's a militarily grounded book. It's talking about who has the high ground, who is in the position to take over the world. Well, Jesus Christ is, see. So do you see the parallel with Joshua and what he's trying to do with the military, getting up to Jerusalem and getting the high ground, see? Okay, so Joshua's got to come in. He's come in from the east again. And there is a fortress city that guards the high ground. It's the most important uh, city in the land, okay? And it's called Jericho, and it's a fortress, okay? Um, So this is the number one city they've got to take, okay, to get to the high ground, okay? They can't get around them, and then then they'll have their enemies behind them and in front of them, and that won't be a good situation. So he's getting his soldiers ready to go and take this city. Turn to Joshua 5.13. Joshua 5.13, this is an interesting conversation that takes place. The Israelites by this time had just crossed the Jordan River. Remember, he divided the waters there like he had done for Moses. And they set up the 12 stones, one for each tribe, as a memorial that God had, was now with Joshua in the same way he was with Moses. So they're going to follow this guy, Joshua. And apparently, uh, they're staying in a little place called Gilgal, just camped outside of Jericho. And he's got his military strategy. He's ready to, to, to take the city. And just before he makes the invasion, we read this in verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from, the, from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. It sounds a little reminiscent, doesn't it? I mean, it's supposed to, right? Same thing that happened to Moses in a way is now happening to Joshua because Joshua is the successor to Moses. It says, And Joshua did so. So who is this person? Okay. All that happened was Joshua was walking around his, his camp like a sentry. You know, he's got some soldiers over here. He's got some soldiers over there. And then he sees somebody strange that's got his sword drawn. And in classic military fashion, he challenges the strangers of allegiance. I mean, because what's the most important question to, in warfare to answer correctly? Are you for us or are you against us? We need to know this information. The question we want to play with in our heads a little bit is why did this person answer Joshua the way he did? Because it's a weird answer. I mean, he could have said, well, I'm on your side, you know. But instead he said, no. I mean, that's sort of a strange answer. Then he adds, I am captain of the host of the Lord. Now, you're all, we're all supposed to say, now, wait a minute. I thought Joshua was the captain of the host of the Lord. I mean, he's the leader. So who does this guy think he is coming in and claiming he's the captain of the host of the Lord? Okay. Now before we go in too far into this, who are the hosts? You read this in the Bible and people get religious about, oh, the hosts. You know, they think of angels sitting on cotton balls in the sky or something. I don't know. This word basically means armies. The armies of the Lord, okay? Which obviously is the Israeli army, okay? Um, 
the IDF, they would use this, Israeli Defense Forces would use this, host this terminology, okay, to refer to themselves, okay. They're the armies of the Lord, okay. So they're a bunch of warriors, and this guy says, I am the captain of the armies or warriors of the Lord, okay. Now, that's what he's saying. Now, what would it have meant if the character said to Joshua, hey, Joshua, I'm for you. I'm on your side. I'm with you, buddy. Okay. Well, it would have implied that Joshua was the authority over this person. That Joshua was really the, the captain. Okay. But is Joshua really the captain? See the reason this strange person responded the way he did to the question? It's because the question was the wrong question. Okay. Apparently, whoever this personage is, he outranks Joshua. And who is it that can outrank Joshua? I say it this way. God is man. Now, I don't say it the way it's traditionally said by people. They say, oh, it's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, blah, blah, blah. It's so much better, I would tell you, to formulate this in this way. It's God as man. Every time you see this, you know, the person who fought with Jacob, remember? Peniel? Okay, God as man. Because remember in the passage, what does it say? It says, Jacob fought with a man. Later it says, Jacob says, I saw God and lived. God as what? Man. That's a textual truth. Okay? It is not a textual truth to say in the pre-incarnate Christ. It is a textual truth to say it's God as man. Now, why do I say, make, why do I insist on this? I insist on this because of this. Well, yes, I really believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ and all that kind of stuff. This is preparatory for understanding Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Because who is Jesus Christ? He's God as man. Okay? So instead of saying this is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, what we say is it's God coming as man. And what that does is it prepares you for the incarnation and the Gospels. And then it all falls into place. We've got the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus isn't God, blah, 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 blah. If you, if you have taught the Old Testament correctly that God as man has come many times, then what's the problem with Jesus being God as man? Shouldn't be a problem at all. Okay? The, the, the playing field has already been set by the Old Testament. This isn't something new in the New Testament. This is something that's just been pointed to by the Old Testament. Okay? So, um, this character sets us up for the Gospels. Okay? And what is the meaning of his answer? No. It means I'm the authority over this outfit. Okay? You, you're Joshua and you're great and you're Moses' successor and all that, but guess what? I'm the commanding officer. And Joshua realized that immediately, didn't he? He just bowed down and, and that was it. I mean, he knew. Okay? So now this figure has shown, shown up, this God is man, and what's he going to do? He's going to give him a strategy. Okay? So now that we know who's in authority, okay, we go to the tactics, we go to the strategy. And, he, and, and God is man here gives him the most bizarre set of tactics an army has ever heard, okay? You know the story. What are the tactics? I want you to walk around uh, Jericho once a day for six days. I want you to do this in a specific formation and sound the trumpets. Then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around Jericho seven times, and then I want you to sound the trumpets, and I want all the people to yell, and the walls will come tumbling down. Now, what do you think about that military tactic? Well, I hope you would say, that sounds stupid, because it does sound stupid. But notice something interesting in, jo interesting in Joshua 6, 16. There's a verb tense here as they follow this tactic out. There's a verb tense here that should strike you. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Right at the end there, that's the verb I'm talking about. Has given you the city. Is that past tense, present tense, or future tense? Past. Okay, but wait a minute. There, had they really taken the city yet? I mean, historically, had they taken the city? Okay, not historically. The walls were, at this point, are still standing. So you ask yourself, well, why is the past tense used? Why have they already, been, have they already taken the city? Because it was as good as done. It was as good as done. It was just a matter of, you know, carrying out the operation. But it was theirs. They were going to take the city. Joshua is an interesting case study because he's the one who got these tactics about walk around the city and so forth from the superior God as man, the foretaste of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 
you can only imagine after he got this tactic and he, he says, well, I got I to gotta bring in all my top-ranking military officers, right? And I've got to say, all right, guys, we're changing the strategy for, for Jericho. And they say, what? What, what, do you, what do you mean? We got a great strategy. Okay, pull out the maps of Jericho, go through all this stuff, right? Walk around the city uh, in this silly formation, okay? And he's telling all his top guys this, okay? But apparently, he told them that, and apparently they were all like, okay, let's do it. And because they trusted and obeyed, see, because they trusted and obeyed, like we sang last week, right? The whole thing just played out. Now look, isn't that what happens when we trust and obey? Isn't that what happens when we trust and obey? You know, we, we can't see all the future details of our lives, okay? It's beyond our intelligence, okay? All we know is that the Lord has told us, I want you to trust and obey me today, and I'll work out all the details. Sometimes what he tells us to trust or to do in the New Testament sounds stupid. I mean, really, it does, okay? But that's the lesson, see? It's so simple to state, but sometimes we feel so foolish. You know, what, you just want me just to pray about it? I mean, really? We feel, just feel foolish, just as foolish as, as Joshua probably felt telling his commanding officers, hey, the tactic's going to be we walk around this city, you know, and do this thing. Uh, could, you, could you run that by us again, I'm sure they said, okay? Because that sounds stupid, okay? But that's the way to victory. Okay? Not stupidity, but trusting the Lord and obeying. And he'll give the victory. He'll solve your problem. So the lesson of the Christian life and what many devotional writers have recognized in these pages of Scripture in the conquest is stated here by Thomas Scott. Old writer, so it sounds kind of old, but very classical. And he says this. Okay, and we want to apply this. When the Lord affects his purposes by such means and instruments as we deem adequate... Our views are apt to terminate upon them and to overlook him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Uh, to obviate this propensity, the Lord sometimes deviates from the common tract and works by methods or instruments which in themselves appear not at all suited to produce the intended effect. In other words, what he's saying is there, if the Lord just says, do it and it really makes sense, we don't have a problem with that. But we tend to think, oh, that's an end, the means justifies the end. But he says, now sometimes the Lord tells us to do something that sounds stupid the way to do it. Okay, and that's what he's saying here. He says, he says sometimes it doesn't even have a real connection with it. And that's what this is, you know, walking around the city. Like, what do you mean? That's not, that's not military. I think we can see the point. The point is that God is trying to teach this army a lesson. Okay, do things my way, and guess what? You'll get results. You'll get great results. Okay. Now, I only have a page and a half for the defeated AI, so it's not much. But this is the next event, okay? But the first lesson is what? Trust what the Lord says. Trust and obey. And guess what? I don't care if it sounds stupid or not. Just trust and obey. He's going to take care of it, okay? The walls are going to come tumbling down, whatever it is in your life. He's going to solve it, okay? The next event, and that's the, their defeat. They had a victory, then they had a defeat. It's at Ai. Okay, so they trusted the Lord at Jericho, but something went wrong in the aftermath, and they were defeated at the next battle, Okay? So here's the book of Joshua in a nutshell. Okay, this is what you want to look for in the grammar. The structure for victory is this. You will find this formula in the book of Joshua over and over. Yahweh said, one, Yahweh said, two, Joshua did, and three, the people did. Okay? You find this structure over and over and over when you see that God is trying to teach uh, us something, just like he was trying to teach them something. He's trying to teach us how he works. Okay? Yahweh said, Joshua did, the people did. And then they have victory. Now, what's interesting is if you search for this pattern, this threefold pattern, in chapter 7 of Joshua, the battle of Ai, you won't find this pattern. Yahweh doesn't say, Joshua doesn't do, and the people are defeated. Okay? So the very grammar of Joshua 7 does not follow the grammar of the other chapters where they have victory. And that tells us there's something dramatically wrong at Ai. So Ai, if we went back to our map, it was one of the cities after Jericho on its way up to the high ground toward Jerusalem. So it's also a very important city, okay? And they couldn't just go past it. They have to take it, okay? But you remember what happened? 
there was a man who had taken some of the gold and silver from Jericho. And God had said, I want you to take all the gold and silver. I want you to put it in the temple treasury. Don't keep any of it for yourselves. Don't put it among your own possessions, right? But this man took it, and he put it along with his other belongings in the tent. And he buried it in a hole in the ground in his tent with his belongings. And the man was named Achan. He was of the tribe of Judah. And Israel wasn't supposed to do that. The question, though, is why not? What's the big deal? Okay, why not? Well, because historically, what do armies do? I mean, armies go in, they defeat their enemies, and they take their resources so they can pay their soldiers and also keep, keep advancing, okay? So the war booty, so to speak, is the soldiers because they earned it through fighting, right? But the Israelite soldiers weren't supposed to do that. Why not? Because if the Israelite army marches into the land and they conquer their enemies in the exact same way all the pagan armies do and take resources for themselves, what are they admitting? They're admitting that their God does not supply all their needs. Okay, that they supply all their needs. See, there's, there's spiritual lessons to all of this, okay? And the anti-theists, of course, they read this, they get all bent out of straight because, because it was a destroy men, women, and children. But they skip over these very important details in the text. The real problem isn't that Achan took some resources the real, what's, what's the real issue? The real issue is he didn't trust God to supply all his needs. That's it, okay? And look, if he gets away with it, this is Achan, if he gets away with this, what happens in the next battle? They go in, some other soldiers, they take resources. Before you know it, half the army is taking all these resources. And now the whole army has learned that God doesn't supply all our needs. We supply all our needs. And at that point, guess what's happened to the spiritual life of that nation? It's been totally compromised. So God wasn't going to let them go down that trail. He stops that right at the first. This is the, this is the lesson we have at Ai, okay? God was in a father-son relationship with the nation Israel, right? Israel was his son, okay? What does a father expect of a son? Learn to trust me and obey me. Okay, same for us and our kids. Trust me and obey me. But the kind of obedience the father expects from his son is not partial obedience, but total obedience. He wants total obedience. God is not going to have a son, you know, running around disobeying his authority. Okay? There's an authority structure here for Israel. And um, basically they could do hard time or they could do easy time. Okay? But they're going to do the time under their father. So they could learn it now or they could learn it later. Okay? But this is the issue. When you have a son or a daughter... Does it do any good to let them just keep getting away with violating your authority? Okay. What happens if you just let that go on and on and on and you don't nip it in the bud? Okay. Well, they become rebellious. You know, we have this serious problem in our culture about disciplining our children. Oh, we're not going to do that. That's mean. In fact, we got looks. I mean, my goodness, we got looks and we got talked to. You know, people said stuff to us. My family. Like, you're just being two-two and, you know, all this stuff. Like, I'm sorry, but I blew you off. You know, because I was like, God is my model. Okay? God is my model. And God says, I'm not going to let you people get away with this. Wait till you see what he does to them. If you thought we were harsh, wait till you see what God does to these people. He's giving a model for parenting right here. Because he doesn't want any rebellion in his family. And that's why this threefold pattern is missing in chapter 7. Because Yahweh didn't say do anything, and Joshua and the people just did stuff, and they did it in their own strength out of, without listening to God's word. So by verse 5 in chapter 7, they're completely routed. 36 soldiers are killed, and they go into psychological defeat. We can't defeat these people until the sin of Achan is discovered, and the discipline was to literally stone Achan and his family to death and then torch them. You say, that's a little harsh. Friend, God is not going to permit his son to become a rebel. He's not going to do it. So the discipline may seem severe, but he makes the point, I think. <laughs> and they're not going to be pulling that little stunt again. And see what happens. The problem with us as parents is like, oh, they're just going through a phase. It's just a phase. No, it's not. It's the sin nature. What's wrong with you? Did you grow up in psychological circles or biblical circles? Where are you coming from? Like for real. Because the scriptures say, no, you nip that in the bud right at the start. You do not, because you think, oh, yeah, we took care of it. We told him not to do it again. We made him sit in a corner, and we talked to a three-year-old for four minutes. And the three-year-old, after one minute, is like, can I just get out of here? I don't know what you're saying. 
I don't understand what you're saying. I want a little swat on the behind so I can go back and play and know this is the boundary and I shouldn't cross it. And that's all they want to know. That's all they want to know. You're driving them crazy. And you think, oh, we, we stopped it. And then what? You find out years later, oh, boy, they've been continuing down that path. And we didn't know it, you think? Maybe you should have followed the advice here. God doesn't want people to become rebels, so what he does at the very start is he gives very intense discipline immediately. And that way the little brats go, oh, well, we're going to straighten up, and we're not going to do that again. But look, here's the lesson out of all this. God wants total obedience. He's not interested in partial obedience. He's not interested in pseudo-obedience or fake obedience, you know, like faking it. You can tell when people are faking it. Okay, he wants total obedience, and that's the only kind of obedience he's going to bless. And that's what they're trying to get to, blessing in the land. And that's the lesson of AI. God wants total obedience. Okay, and how do they get there? That was the passage we had read today, right? Joshua 1, 1 through 9. I want you to meditate on my word day and night, and do not turn from it to the left or to the right, and obey everything I've said, and you will have success. There is no other shortcut, okay? It is total obedience. So we've seen two lessons then. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Good song, solid, right on target. Used at Jericho, the, the victory at Jericho, okay, following a very strange military tactic. But they had victory. Then at AI, the lesson is you, you can try to do it yourself, but it ain't going to work. Okay, you can try partial obedience. That's not going to work. Okay, it's got to be total obedience for victory. They didn't have total obedience, so they suffered defeat. So then, trust and obey. There's no other way. Um, and obey with a complete or total heart obedience. Okay? Now, next time, Joshua 9 and 10. Joshua 9 and 10 is what we'll read, those chapters, and the, which is the longest day at Ihalon. And then we'll skip to Judges 1 and 2. Judges chapter 1 and 2 for doom at Bochum. Okay, those are the sections. If you'll read those, and we'll get more principles for doctrine of sanctification uh, for next week. Okay. Today, we uh, get to partake of communion where, remember, that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Again, the greatest doctrine in the history of the world, that he's risen from the dead, and he can't be defeated. And we remember that on the cross, what he did is he paid the penalty for our sin in full. And uh, we honor him by remembering this. So we're putting him in the center of our mind's eye and remembering what he did on the cross for every one of us and uh, what we have and what we share in. So we're going to have a word of prayer, and then those who are, are serving, if you can come forward, we'll, we'll partake of this together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, that he's, he is more than the one who is his Old Testament namesake, Joshua. He is the New Testament Joshua, or Yeshua who the one who will complete the conquest that Joshua and those armies failed to complete. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, the world will belong to him. And we're thankful that we belong to him, we'll be with him, and we'll serve him and reign with him in the kingdom to come and forevermore. What a great blessing to know that a greater than the Old Testament Joshua is coming, that he's already paid for the sins of the world, that he's just being patient right now, He's letting people respond by faith until the world becomes so terrible as it in the land had become in Joshua's day that he comes again and he, he takes command of it. So we look forward to that and we rest in the promises of God and may we remember what he's done. In Christ's name, amen.